0: So, Rebecca, I have a lot of emails that patrons have emailed us, and I thought we'd read those emails and answer them. Also, you went to the fan page, the Psychology in Seattle Facebook fan page, and inquired that people submit questions for you to answer. So I thought we'd be, we'd do both emails and these fan page questions. What do you say, Rebecca?
1: Good. I'm so glad I was proactive.
0: Yeah. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Rebecca?
1: I'm Rebecca Bloom. I'm a therapist specializing in trauma. I have a private practice, but I'm full. Go away. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, this first email is from patron Megan in Yelm. Good old Yelm. She says, I was wondering what you think about therapists with piercings and tattoos. Mm. I'm currently an undergrad working towards my LMHC and was wondering if my alternative lifestyle will hinder me in my future career. Rebecca, what do Mm. you think?
1: Uh, I've taken my piercings out, and I've just started showing my tattoos in the last three months of COVID. I I give up. (laughs) Uh, but I, I, I had piercings when I started, and I took them out, um, but that was 20 years ago. This question came up on the Queer this uh, Group, interesting. Somebody said, this is the way your future clients will know you're one of them. It's okay. It was actually a question about having crazy colored hair. Um, But this idea that eventually you'll get to work with a community that will be excited that you reflect whoever you are. Um, It might impact, I think, a little bit at the beginning, but depends where you live. Like here in Seattle, I don't think it would impact anywhere. Um, What do you think?
0: Yeah, be you. I mean, it's your right as a human being on this planet to express yourself within a certain range of options, tattoos, tattoos hair, you know, uh, piercings, whatever you want to do. It's, you know, be yourself. Uh, Having said that, uh, you want to think about how that does affect things. And if you're in the beginning of your career and you're worried that you're not going to get hired or clients aren't going to like you at first, then, you know, I would think about it, but it's not a requirement by any means. And this is something that all therapists have to think about. You have to think about the way you dress, the way your hair looks what kind of expensive jewelry you might wear you know mm. if you're with people who are underprivileged and you're wearing a $10,000 diamond necklace for no reason to work then what is that what does that communicate to your clients and I used
1: to turn my diamond ring around when I worked in certain settings
0: yeah
1: and it wasn't big
0: <laughs> <laughs> so those kinds of things. You just, you think about it and you think about how it affects things and you also balance that with your own rights as a human being. Uh, you know, say that you just really love this $10,000 diamond necklace. It's just your thing. And you've thought about it and you say, well, it might affect some things, but this is really, really important to me. I can't imagine someone saying that. But, you know, more kind of likely is, I love my tattoos, or my piercings are a part of who I am and my identity. Now, for some clients, they're going to be turned off by that. And what do you do with that? Well, you know, you, you, you account for it. Usually clients come to talk to someone that listens well, and once you do that, then any kind of peripheral identity marker will be forgotten. Um, But it is something to think about. And for those people who are looking for someone like you, then you're a godsend, you know, that to to, for someone with a lot of tattoos and piercings who is looking for a like minded person to find a therapist with those, uh, you know, visuals might really help them to trust you and feel like they are comfortable anyway.
1: Yeah. And I think especially, you know, there is. A way of thinking about therapy that you and I both came into as young therapists. And Generation Z sees things completely differently. Um, I mean, I don't think that any of my younger clients would care at all about tattoos. And so I think, you know, it's that world that a therapist is a blank slate is only dying out. And I'm curious in 20 years if we'll ever remember a time that therapists didn't have a public persona and see clients or weren't obviously who they are. Um, I'm listening to a fantastic series of three trainings on implicit bias in the therapy room. And the client was talking about um, you know showing up as black in the room Um, And how it's only white client, only white therapists who think that they're not showing up white in the room. Um, And so I think if you do run into trouble with older supervisors, um, just knowing that, uh, you know, it's their privilege that, that makes them think that somehow they're a blank slate and that the client doesn't see all of their, all of who they are.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to say, is that this blank slate idea is essentially white, male, rich, heterosexual slate. It's not a blank slate. (laughs) And so this notion that uh, somehow a blank slate is, quote, unquote, looking professional. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, we're talking about conservative haircut, uh, what is considered, I don't know, Nordstrom clothing, if you will, you know, in the formal section. Uh, not flashy colors, no piercings, no tattoos. Those, that's an identity. J- you know, that's not that's not blank. That that is a uniform of the privileged. Now, if that's your uniform, then that's fine. But this notion that that's a blank slate or that's the definition of professionalism is a hundred percent privileged. So, uh, yeah, it, it's it's really quite silly. Now, like I said, we're not here to make a statement necessarily in the therapy room. We're here to be inviting to clients. And so, you know, you just think about that. Uh, what's one of the questions that someone asked you on the Facebook fan page, Rebecca?
1: Uh, so Colin Miller asked something that you and oh, I, good I old, already... good old Colin. <laughs> You and I are already talking about this. I'm trying to get in on this show, which is, what do you want to see uh, this podcast tackle next? And I am pulling hard to be on the Avatar Last Airbender uh, version of this show that you do. Um, it's. I'm obsessed with the show. I'm watching it through with my son for the fourth time. And I think all of the messages that it has to give us right now about society and community are super important. So I can't wait for you to finish watching this series so that we can podcast on it.
0: Yeah, there's just so many things to be watching. And uh, I had been hearing about this uh, show for a long time and thought I wouldn't like it. But then I heard some people like yourself, whom I respect, love it. and And then we named our cat Azula. And Mm. and so I thought, well, I better watch it. But there's so many other things. Colin literally just asked me to watch Ratchet, which is about you know the one. I'm watching it. Yeah, and other shows that he wants me to watch for for the show and for the podcast. And so definitely on the list. But yeah, okay. So when I finally finish that, maybe we'll do a a four a four peat with Berto, you, and Colin. Uh, What's another question there?
1: So Shoshana asks, uh, she'd like to hear about somatic therapy, and I was curious with the state that everybody's in, if you and I could just do a demo.
0: Okay. Um, How? (laughs) Over over audio, you mean?
1: Yes. Oh, I've done. Well, yeah. So I'm just gonna do a series of questions. Okay. um, To give people a different experience, and maybe I'll set it up a little bit. Okay. Uh, so Dr. Janina Fisher, um, if I were to have a guru with her, I just kind of follow her around. She's a, She was a globe-trotting woman in her 70s. Um, I'm sure she's doing it all from her living room now, but she is the master trauma treatment teacher of our time. And I learned these five exercises from her. Um, She is part of Pat Ogden's sensory motor psychotherapy teaching staff. Um, But I don't know the exact origin of these five questions or these five somatic uh, body positions that we're going to go through. Um, So what I'm going to ask is for Kirk, you to think about something, And just let me know what the thing is first If it's negative or positive My cat? Your cat Okay, so I just want you to think about your cat While you're thinking about your cat I just want you to sit up straight So just imagining that your spine is erect And your head is sitting comfortably on top of your spine And just take a few breaths there Okay. And we're just going to see if there's any information there
0: uh, I like my cat.
1: Good. Okay. So we know that you like your cat. Now we're going to think about your cat. <laughs> we're going to put, you're going to put your hands on your heart. Either one hand, both hand, one hand over the other hand. Just put your hand on your heart.
0: Okay. I miss Anything my cat. You, I want to I see wanna, her.
1: Do You want to be with your cat. Yeah. So as we touch into our hearts, right, we feel that, that yearning for closeness. Now, I want you to think about your cat, and I want you to put your hands up, like in a stop position. And it can be one hand or both hands, way far up, way high out, way to the side, wherever you want to do stop.
0: I want them to be nice to each other, the two mm-hmm. cats. Mm-hmm. They're not very nice to each other.
1: <laughs> Is, are they different ages?
0: Uh, yeah. Well... Mm-hmm. Uh, do we, they're, they're both adopted so uh, from faraway lands and so I'm not sure if we know how old the other one is yeah, I'm, anyway yeah one's a lot older I'm pretty sure
1: and uh, so the when one you're going to put your hands out like as an act of reaching out to somebody and you can put it high up or low down you can put both up it's up to you and as you reach out I want you to think about what you're asking for
0: I'm asking for the ability to leave all our doors open so that the cats can roam freely instead of having to section off, you know, territory for the cats and have to constantly make sure that they don't try to, you know, venture into each other's territory without us literally having to watch them. That's what I'm grasping for. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. I feel that one. This is this happens with our dogs. We have a 15 year old uh, rescue, part Chihuahua, part uh, miniature pincher. Mochi. And at some Mochi, at some points during the day, she believes that the entire couch—it's this huge L-shaped couch—belongs to her. And then the cute, crazy Lhasa Apso mix, who's a year old may not even approach the couch it <laughs> just causes like total chaos in our house alright so the last one is you're going to think about your cat and you're going to give yourself a hug and for those of you who are familiar with yoga this is like eagle arms so if you always do one arm over the other try switching it up so maybe left over right instead of right over left and just think about your cat and give yourself a hug
0: well that's nice mhm
1: What do you think about that?
0: Uh, I think that I'm a good dad to my cats.
1: Oh. You're a good cat daddy. (laughs) You need a shirt that says that.
0: I think I do. I do, actually. (laughs) I do have a shirt that says that. (laughs) Um, I think it literally says cat daddy or something. Mm. Anyway. um, hmm, That's cool. (laughs) I like it. Yeah. I mean, the thing about, for those listening, that alternative, non-talky, non-verbal therapy uh, things. It, art therapy, drama therapy. Uh, it, it, so this is considered somatic therapy?
1: Yeah. I okay. mean, that's a somatic exercise.
0: Okay. Because I've seen other things associated with Obviously, there's a lot of different things, but um, somatic therapy, these non-verbal interventions that therapists can use and we can use with ourselves promote often a, a new route to getting to emotions and experience and material that talking doesn't, you know which makes a lot of sense, you know like the the putting the hands up, it was like immediately this this somatic you know, emotional thought process came to mind and and whereas if you just asked me like, you know, how would you get there, you'd verbally just be like, so what's what's, you know, what's because, but just by putting into words, you already kind of route people. Because what, what would mm-hmm. you say? Like you know, what? So what's annoying you about your cats? Yeah, <laughs> you'd have to put these words to it. But by putting a a hand signal out, it's so preverbal. It's more primordial of just like get away. It's like there's. It's a non you know six month year old three month year old children have the ability to say no. You know, before we have words, we have these these you know feelings that we don't have words for right away and are bigger than words and so that's the benefit of using these kinds of things that's great I like it
1: yeah and also what you're noticing is it seems silly but each one of those five body positions had a different experience with it and so a lot of somatic work is learning to be open to and to trust the body's own version of the story Right. so that even within our own bodies we've got multiple stories going on um, and this is a great way to explore that so I, we did it around the dinner table the other day and uh, it was especially if you're doing this with friends and family the reaching out and saying what you're asking for that one has become my favorite these days and yeah. the with clients right now, mostly I'll just say, would you like a different experience than what you're having in your head? <laughs> People are like, yes. So I've gotten, you know, I've, I'm doing all kinds of somatic exercises with folks. So just to mix it up, because we've talked about this, like this, the fatigue of the day-to-day right now, um, you know, to put this, we are, we're in late September Um, you know, we are, what, six or seven months into quarantine. You know, it's, it's it's grueling.
0: Yeah. And there's no end in sight.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So So there's that.
0: Yeah. Um, maybe a year from now, uh, maybe longer, honestly. So upsetting. And, uh, anyway, so let's take a break. Let's shed ourselves of this Mm. and we'll get back. Shake it off. Let's, uh, continue answering the listeners questions. What do you say, Rebecca?
1: I'm, I'm ready.
0: All right, we're back from the break. I have an email here for you that I thought you might have things to say, Rebecca. Anonymous Patron says, I have been a 911 dispatcher in the greater mm-hmm. Seattle area for almost 10 years. Can you talk about secondhand trauma in medical workers, dispatchers, mental health professionals, etc.? And maybe discussing effective ways for organizations to address with their workers what their workers are going through, as well as individual strategies and experiences. Rebecca, I know that you specialize in you know, burnout and 2nd trauma, vicarious trauma. So what are some things that organizations can do to help people?
1: Well, the first off is we used to have time to check in and uh, report out what our experiences were. And what I'm really hearing from more and more jobs is there's just time for administrative tasks and there's no time to just check in with your supervisor. Um, so the first thing that we can do is just acknowledge that these jobs are hard and they're inherently vicarious, traumatized thing. Oops, that's a word. Um, There's no shame in it. It doesn't mean that the person has done the job wrong. Uh, It just means that we're asking certain members of our society to hold all that is broken in our society. Um, And so the first part is there is all these protocols out there to address very vicarious trauma. And whenever I present, I'll just, as I'm going through them, I'll just ask, has anyone heard of this one? Have you ever seen this one before? Has anyone ever done this survey at work? Um, And no one ever has. So I think if agencies could just address it at all and normalize it and create community spaces to talk about it, that would be huge.
0: Right. Yeah, there's a lot that we could talk about with this. And in addition to that, uh, I would just say organizations could, as you're saying, essentially just acknowledge it, raise awareness, also allowing for breaks both Mm. short and long, whether it's just like five minutes or maybe the rest of the day, depending on emotionally where someone is at. Making sure that the mental health coverage is good where you're working. Also, like a buddy system or just checking in with each other or going to coworkers. Because sometimes you don't know. You're in such a state of shock. You don't know that you're actually in need of triage mentally, essentially. and, And a buddy might be able to detect that or might be able to give you permission to take a break when you need to. You know, essentially, it's, you're a 911 dispatcher, an honest patron. Imagine, uh, you don't have to imagine, you've been through experiences where life and death situations, people being injured, people dying, people dead, and you are, you know, having to hold it together. you got to be professional and you, you have to uh, be there with them through thick and thin for, you know, several minutes, if not hours over the telephone, and when the uh, job is done, your body is in a state of emotional and physical distress. And unless you have some way of managing that, that distress is going to take a toll psychologically and physically. Um, Tons of studies show this in in second-hand trauma, vicarious trauma, burnout, Uh, PTSD literally will happen because of this and organizations you know for the most part anecdotally anyway I think research shows this just ignore it completely and they create a culture of you know quote unquote being tough which is ridiculous Um, it's you know as stupid as society saying like well sleep is for wusses or something you know their medical residencies are like this which is just so stupid and so um so it's uh there's a lot that we need to do (laughs) we need to you know change culture we need to have you know to ask an employer to say you need to allow your employees to take random breaks when they emotionally need to is to some people (laughs) anti-american you know (laughs) and so uh but we need to change things, and some people are. The individual things that I think we can all do is monitor your own distress level, monitor your own uh, emotions. So, making sure, you know, a lot of people don't do that enough. Most people don't, in my book. Also, don't be tough, you know, quote unquote tough, you know, be human, be normal take breaks, take vacations, find things that you can take joy in, you know, if if you are being traumatized all day at work and then you come home and you watch the news, I don't think that's a recipe for wellness. <laughs> so, if you're being in distress all day and you come home, do what brings you joy, you know, take a break from the ills of the world. Getting good sleep is a big part of it. Talking about it, grieving,
1: and eating well, too. I mean, I can't yeah. tell you how many people come into my office sobbing, having worked a social service job, anyway. always, well, I didn't have time for breakfast, and then I had coffee for lunch. And it's like, well, you're going to feel like crap if there's no gas in the engine. So this sense that the work itself is hard, and you, know, you need six grams of protein for breakfast, you need to remember to take a lunch, like... This work is f- physically taxing, although you're just talking. Some people are actually responding to emergencies, but you gotta keep gas in the engine. Or, yeah. Or.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And for those of you that are hearing Rebecca's uh, audio kind of clip in and out, we we acknowledge it. We know it's happening. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca has worked very hard. You know, we're in the pandemic right now, and normally I would just have people over to my office, and I have you know, I've spent lots of money on making sure everything's all set up right. But podcasting in the pandemic means over the internet, and so um, it, all these various different uh, issues have to be ironed out. And Rebecca has worked really hard, but her internet's just. You know, it's fast, but it's It's... not fast enough. And so every once in a while it cuts out and, you know, I hope people can forgive us during these troubling times. Um, uh, I'm giving
1: it all she's got.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Um, The last thing I'll say about burnout along these lines is to think about your overall career path. A lot of people that I've talked to about this will come to me and they'll just be like, I'm burnt out. I, you know, I don't enjoy my job anymore. I, you know, I'm in constant stress all the time. And, you know, we talk about their career and I find, you know, for example, that 90% of their clients at their agency are uh, sexual assault victims, for example. And, you know, we talk about self-care and, and, you know, they're doing all the things and yet they still can't sleep at night and they're still not enjoying their life and they still don't enjoy their job. And I just say, well, it sounds terrible on a certain level because someone has to help these people, but maybe this sort of population needs to be spread out more. And if your agency doesn't do that, maybe this job is, isn't is the best for you or really for anybody. <laughs> and I guess this is another thing organizations can do is to think about spreading the distress around as much as you can instead of clumping it all together, you know?
1: Right. And giving people a variety of things to do. Right. This idea that one person takes all the heavy-duty cases—it's—it's um, it's, you're just—it's a recipe for burnout. Right. Um, the agencies do it because it's easy, but it's this idea of how thinly staffed places are, and if places work in what would be considered now overstaffed, there would be less turnover, and it would be more cost-effective over time.
0: Right. And I always say this, and I don't think it'll ever happen. But if we really want to solve this problem, it is allocating tax dollars to this mental health coverage in, you know, uh, your community, such that you can pay people more, you can have more clinicians, you can have better supervision, you can retain people longer, you can allow therapists or you know nine one one dispatchers to take more time off, and. Uh, so, if we really want to solve the problem, a big part of it has to be putting up money, because um, you you stress out these novice there. Because a lot of times, people working at you know mental health agencies, they're novice because they're just starting out in their career. And usually, not always, but as you progress in your career, you start to realize, oh, I can make five times the amount of money with ten percent the stress in private practice. Well, sign me up. And uh, that's a problem, and it's it. And often, what is blamed are the individuals who are doing that. When what we need to be blaming is politicians and voters for not allocating the money for this sort of thing. Um, it's not an individual's fault, Rebecca and me included, for trying to make a living <laughs> and trying to actually enjoy our careers. Um, if if there was enough money in these agencies, we might still be there enjoying our careers there.
1: Right. So in Washington State, we are a very, especially Seattle area, we are a very high income area, but we have the 14th worst mental health system in the country. Right. So the allocations of funds, we're famous for not having enough inpatient beds. And so what happens is people who in another time would be on inpatient reserving receiving wraparound services are at agencies and the therapist is expected to kind of solve the problem by seeing this client three times a week. Um, and so just the actual workload sends people over the edge because yeah. the system is so broken. Yeah. That
0: yeah. And it, I get these questions from supervisees and trainees It's just like, okay, what do I do? And I'm just like, there's nothing you can do. You're, you're a, you're a mental health therapist. You're a marriage and family therapist. This person has issues that are way beyond what you can help them with. But you know, they just keep getting told. Well, you know, just keep working the tier. You know, anyway. So, what's another question from the old Facebooks there, Rebecca?
1: So I'm just gonna. It's it's more of a statement that I made to the group. It's a question I'd wish I'd been asked. So I'm just gonna ask it, uh, which is, how are people? Uh, coping right now and what is helping Um, and so I put up on the fan page um, at the time I think it was like a six hour playlist it's now a ten hour playlist of songs that are helping me get through right now Um, but I definitely I had that question to people like what's actually helping (laughs) what's getting you What's getting you by?
0: Well, what's and, your number one soothing song?
1: Mm, uh, boy, what is my number one soothing song? It's it's actually, uh, kind of an angry song. It's Beth Midler's version of "I Will Be Released," which was a feminist anthem in the '70s, and it's as if nothing has actually changed. But that song will always get me dancing and moving when I am feeling pretty numb.
0: Yeah, what How I've been love for you? Well, there's so many songs I could say, but uh, sort of a, a different thing that I've been doing is I've been, I've been, I'm stuck in my office twenty four seven, and so I've been decking out my office with all this. Memorabilia and things mm. that I just want uh, objects that I want. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, I don't know if you saw me post on Facebook. You know, Lego things, Star Wars Legos, things that I've been buying, and and what I've been doing most recently is I've been buying old albums, old you know records, vinyl mm-hmm. uh, to hold onto in my hands and look at the liner mm. notes and to smell the the sleeve and all that kind of stuff, and and so I've been buying old records and just kind of propping them up on my bookshelf to just kind of look at.
1: (laughs) Do you have a record player to play them?
0: No, I I used to. So, you know, I I held on to records uh, well beyond their, you know, normal lifespan. I I was listening to records up until, I don't know, 15 years ago uh, because before you had so before you had Spotify and before you had Napster uh, you had records because you could go to the used record store and for 25 cents you could buy a mm. record and so I I always loathed paying 15 plus dollars just for 10 songs it just mm-hmm. when I had no money it just felt like yeah I might love those 10 songs but $15 I mean I could probably afford one CD every three or four months you know and so mm-hmm. uh, that's not how I do music, you know, I do music like I want it all, you know? And, and so I would have records. And um, then at a certain point, I just got so tired of, they were so heavy when I moved and I, I just got rid of all of them. I had Mm. like, you know, I don't know, hundreds of records, every Beatles album, every Paul McCartney, every John Lennon album, you know, some multiple things. So I don't know. I, the thing that I'm saying is that how I'm coping with the pandemic is that I am, th- for me, thinking about how I want my safe space to feel like. Mm-hmm. I, oh, I also bought a Battlestar Galactica Viper. <laughs> you know, the, the, the fighters Life's
1: Life size.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, if patrons want to know what their money is going towards, it's it's this sort of thing. Uh, I'm also getting a bunch of movie posters for our mm. living room, mm-hmm. you know, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, mm-hmm. Princess Bride, Spirit mm-hmm. Away, you know, these mm-hmm. kinds of things. And um, I don't know, it it just makes me feel like I'm doing something. And it, mm-hmm. it feels like it, f- I, it, I think it does scratch kind of an itch that going out would do for me. You know, going to the movie uh-huh. theater and seeing all the movie posters, and and seeing all the just things in the world. It's, I guess I'm buying the world and putting it in my house.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I've been reading a lot about herbs and their medicinal use, and dreaming about making my medicinal herb garden. And then it started raining this week, and I actually felt joy because I could go and buy plants and plant them and I need to find some yarrow and like it's weird like so I'm turning my yard into a place I would want to spend a lot of time in which is something I've never thought about before but it's like kind of what we need to have to make happen now
0: yeah all right uh you got another question there from the fan page me yeah are there any more Uh
1: um. No, I think I've run out.
0: <laughs> oh, okay, so I have lots of questions here. Anonymous okay. patron, uh, she writes in, I just made an appointment with a therapist after reading so many good reviews about him. His Instagram, however, looks like he jumped out of a right said Fred video. If you remember the I'm too sexy for my oh. shirt. Um, in eleven out of twenty eight pictures on his Instagram, he is wearing underwear and yeah. showing and showing off his muscles. In one picture, he holds up a sign saying single after 10 years in front of his naked upper body. Some of the reviews about his therapy practice point out how extremely empathetic he is. Is he overly nice and compensating for something bad about him? I can't tell. He seems immature and attention seeking. Is that a bad sign? Rebecca, what do you think?
1: Uh, Yeah, that's a bad sign. That would be a bad sign for me. Um, I don't even like when people's professional photo is a picture of them in the car that like a selfie, like I, that makes me worry. Um, Oops. Sorry, everyone. It's made a bad noise. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I would say if that's what he's putting out into the world, I wouldn't feel comfortable with that. Um, I think if you're into that kind of bra culture, uh, he might be a great fit for you, but if you see something immediately on the internet that makes you uncomfortable, yeah, I would say run.
0: Yeah, well, so it, for sure. I mean, if if you're not comfortable, then right, that's a disaster. You know, Like you, you need to feel comfortable with your therapist. The relationship has to be good. But to me, this is same as tattoos and piercings. Uh, someone should be allowed to do things within a certain range and, and what's different between someone taking Instagram pictures of themselves and in, in their underwear is, you know, as long as it's, um, I don't know, <laughs> not, not terrible and someone taking – you know, I, I have a supervisee right now who actually – she is uh, very much into sex-positive culture and very much into feminism and very much into body love, self-love. And she takes pictures of herself in bikinis and puts it on Instagram. And uh, she—it's it, part of her brand. She just wants people to feel comfortable in their own skin. She's also black, and she just wants to promote ideas. I don't know if it's working, and you could do some kind of critical analysis of the whole thing, I suppose. But, but it in that me supervising her, I had to really think about that because. I haven't had a lot of – most of the supervisees that I've had tend to be pretty conservative uh, online. And so I, I haven't really had to think about that question. i was just like, okay, what is the line there? And over time, I just you know came to the conclusion of just like, well, what we were saying earlier is think about the effect it has on your clients because your clients – if they do Google you, they're going to come across this sort of thing. The other thing is, you can make your Instagram private. By the way, <laughs> you know it's not hard to do. But you know, people should be allowed to to live the life that they want to live. And at the same time, you just have to think about how that's going to come across to people. Uh, for a man to be super muscly and in his underwear on public, you know, internet forums, for a lot of people. That is going to signal certain things about you, like you're not a very nice person, or, you know, potentially, I'm not saying it automatically means this, but, you know, it could mean that uh, it could signal to someone that you're insensitive, or that you believe in certain masculine, toxic ideas that are not going to be appreciated in therapy. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that, of course, but it could signal to people along those lines, and just being you know careful about that. The other thing that I'll say is that for clients, don't Google your therapist if you if you're not going to like what you see. You know, uh, be you know, clients out there, just think twice before you Google your therapist because there's a chance that a good relationship, potential or current, could be ruined by what you find out you know in this you know internet is pretty easy to to google of course but but let's take it further down the road and say like well technically speaking you probably could figure out where your therapist lives and drive to their house and and through uh, binoculars like spy on them right now that at, from the street and that wouldn't be illegal cuz it's you know if you can see something from a, a public street or something, I'm pretty sure that's not illegal. If you climb a telephone pole and you spy, then I think that's illegal. But the point is, is that what if you see something that is not going to help your relationship with that therapist? Maybe they like to fart a lot, <laughs> or maybe they like to make fun of people on the TV when they're at home and you you see that, or maybe they're a bit harsh with their uh, kids in a way that turns you off. Well, in those situations, most of us would agree. It's like, well, you probably shouldn't have driven to their house and spied on them because, yeah, you, you know, law of averages, you're going to see something that's going to turn you off. So just be careful. You, you're, of course, free as a client. Uh, you know, you are you have the right to Google your therapist. And, it, you know, it is a curiosity that often people want to have you know satisfied but you just have to be careful around that Um, now for this anonymous patron it sounds like they're the it's a you know they they're reading online reviews of a therapist so you just want to be careful about believing those reviews to begin with right?
1: right i mean i would say so people have said like why don't you have a presence on yelp and Those kinds of sites are notoriously really hard for therapists. Usually, people only write negative reviews. Um, But I would, you know, therapy usually isn't... It's hard to review a therapist.
0: Okay, deserving listeners. So, Rebecca suddenly cut off there, and then we had a conversation over the phone. Turns out she had massive problems with her computer, and so... (laughs) We just gave up or she gave up. I, I allowed her to, you know, see if she wanted to figure it out. And she's like, no, I give up. So I thought I'd just end with some patron emails here. Upper tier patron Holiday from Montana. She writes, I'm curious about the mindset of people who are refusing to evacuate due to wildfires, namely the folks who are afraid of Antifa and Black Lives Matter arsonists and looters and those who believe the government is trying to drive them off their land by purposefully setting fires. How do people let these misguided fears cloud their judgment in the face of massive wildfires? And in the process, they put our firefighters at considerable risk by blocking access roads, brandishing firearms, etc. End of email. Yeah, it's a tough situation. I don't know. It, it, It can really be demoralizing sometimes some of the things that are happening in our society and around the world right now. Uh, to be clear, conspiracy theory beliefs are not only in the United States. It's around the world. There are many concerning anecdotes that you can look to. So why do people act this way? Well, you know, there's a, there's a number of different ways to look at it. Is it that there's always been misinformed people, but the, but the news just focuses on them more now? Or are there more misguided people these days? Due to the internet and particularly charismatic conspiracy theorists? Well, it's hard to tell, but research seems to indicate that we have the same rate of beliefs and conspiracy theories now as we did in the past. It's hard to measure that because, you know, what do you consider to be a conspiracy theory? How do you measure the collective belief system in it? Certainly, it seems like it's worse now. But, you know, in my 49 years on this planet, I'm here to tell you that conspiracy theories have always been believed in. And there's always been pseudoscience, and there's always been misinformation. I remember growing up, there was this TV show called In Search Of by, uh, and the host was Leonard Nimoy. I loved this show. And it was a very popular show back in the day. But it is just filled with pseudoscience, Loch Ness, Monster, all kinds of things. And People believed in it. I don't remember anyone saying, I don't know about that. So misinformation, science, illiteracy is something that has been, you know, common, in fact, potentially more common in the past. But we definitely see a lot of problems. And when I think about this, I think, well, if they've always been around, then, you know, it's just one of those things you're just always going to see. And then I'm less demoralized. But then I think, well, it seems worse now. Then I get demoralized. <laughs> then I start worrying about the future because you start worrying about, you know, if we project what it seems to be happening into the future, we're going to have like half of the country just believing in some of the craziest non-scientific ideas known to us, right? So it's hard to tell. I, I As a person who studies a fair amount of history, I... I suspect that in a hundred years, people of that time in a hundred years from now will probably have similar complaints and worries that we do today. Meaning that they're worried that the you know the world is going down the tubes and that there's way too much misinformation out there. There's just always been that, so I I, I suspect that that's true. Anyway. But why do people believe these sorts of things? Well, the reason is is because this is not my uh, observation, but this is what experts will point to, which is that we don't have enough early education regarding critical thinking and how to understand what's happening in the world. Just think back to your own education that you had, kindergarten through 12th grade, and think about how much time was spent on particular topics, right? Uh, for me, pretty much every year there was a science class. Okay, that's good. But what sort of science did we study? Well, we studied covalent bonds and joules, you know, meaning uh, in energy, and we studied chemistry, and we studied biology. These are all important things, but how much of the class was dedicated to critical thinking and understanding pseudoscience, understanding scientific method, understanding how to evaluate news stories? I don't remember ever talking about that. Now, I Suspect that today there are in, uh, instructors that are doing that, but enough? I don't think so. I mean, clearly, it's not like the younger generation is somehow immune to pseudoscientific, uh, you know, influence. So uh, I would say, if if I was education commissioner, I would say let's let's you know rework from the ground up how you know the percentage points that we spend in school. I also think we should spend a lot of time on psychology and development and attachment theory and communication and knowing your own emotions and these are incredibly important things that frankly are way more important than learning calculus. I mean, let's just be honest. Now, to the th- Few individuals that need to learn calculus, then they need to learn calculus. But, you know, it's sort of career dependent, right? Whereas everyone needs to understand pseudoscience, how to read the news, how to think critically, and how to regulate your emotions. Everyone needs to understand that. Anyway, so we need to revamp our education system. I can't imagine that ever happening, though. The other thing we need to do is we need to have better science communication from scientists, That's something that I spend a fair amount of time trying to do from this podcast, is I I try to communicate science in a way that is palatable and understandable and interesting. Way too many – when you take all of the people who know stuff, who know specialized knowledge in the sciences – The amount of communication collectively, like per capita that they put out is probably like one word per science, per scientist per year, (laughs) you know, meaning that the vast, vast majority of people that know things do not even attempt to communicate to the public. And that's a problem, because. If you're a conspiracy theorist, you love talking about it on the internet. You love spouting your silliness. And so uh, now, having said that, some conspiracy theories are uh, probably true. Uh, Very rarely are they, though. (laughs) You know, the uh, Jeffrey Epstein, Epstein conspiracy is much more possible. We might not ever know if the likelihood of it is so much more possible because you only needed a handful of people to pull it off. Pulling off like Area 51 or uh these kinds of or QAnon, these kinds of conspiracy theories requires literally millions of people to not leak the truth, that sort of thing. Anyway um, the other thing is we need accountability for politicians. These are our elected leaders and they need to lead and they need to lead in a scientific based uh, system. And they should defer to scientists and experts when they don't know what they're talking about. And they could harm the public by just spreading misinformation, which is happening a lot more lately. And they can just erode the public's trust in scientists by putting down scientists and acting like they know things. Anyway, so that's one thing. Another thing is, is. Uh, We need to stop being hostile to particular groups of people. I don't hear people talking about this. So let's just take the religious right, for example. The religious right, certain groups of them uh, have certain stances like anti-abortion, this kind of thing. And what we do as a society on the left, anyway, which is my tribe, the progressive left – will tend to just put them down, call them hicks and stupid, and they just want to control women, you know, the very hurtful statements. And yeah, there's some rhetoric value to rhetoric value to saying some of these severe things. But the net effect is that a lot of these people essentially turn away from us, and they probably turn away from science as well. You know, people who believe in evol- believe that the world, the universe is 6,000 years old, this kind of thing. To call those people like stupid and idiotic and backward and hicks and, you know, all these kinds of words – Is hurtful, And what does that do? Well, it just makes them become more insular and more distrusting of what we're saying, which is, you know, there's archaeological evidence, there's geological evidence, there's astronomical evidence. And when we are so mean to them, they just say, well, you know, screw you. I don't trust anything you say because you don't understand me and you're very mean to me. And so we need to stop being so mean. There is so much hostility going on. And for you, uh, anonymous patron or upper-tier patron Holiday from Montana, uh, I'm guessing you hate these people who are, you know, brandishing firearms regarding the, the wildfires. Okay, you're angry. You're upset. And you should be. It's very upsetting. Well, what do we do with it when we're actually in the public forum? Do we rip those people apart and call them, you know, I don't know, terrible names? Or do we try to understand them? Where are they coming from? Where did they, how, w- there was a logical path that led them to where they're at. You just don't understand that logic. I don't understand that logic because I'm, I'm not in their bubble. I'm not in their echo chamber. There's a logical reason as to why they're doing that. If we can reach out to them in a compassionate way, I believe strongly that we could actually change the situation. The other thing is, is we need social media regulations, social media, you know, I, I have to say in the beginning of social media uh, emergence, I was on board with a lot of what Mark Zuckerberg was saying. And I'm not fully aware of all the ins and outs of this, but, or at least what internet people were saying. I remember Silicon Valley people, people in Seattle saying like, we need to keep the internet free. Because as soon as you start doing regulations on free speech and all these kinds of things on the Internet, then it completely degrades what the Internet can provide, which is a free sandbox for us to express ourselves. And we don't want government to get in there. We don't want courts and lawsuits to ruin the Internet. And, And I remember being very on board with that 20 years ago, seeing what the Internet and social media has done because social media companies are based on profit they're not based on science or on the public good you know they they don't care about the public good what they care about is clicks and making money selling advertisements and and what we have seen in this experiment that we've done on ourselves is it just further divides us and makes us more likely to be in a massive echo chamber you know you go on google and you google say like global warming is and you are in a red state, then it's going to say global warming is a hoax, you know, how Google like, will f- finish the phrase for you. Whereas if you're in Seattle, global warming is just just based on where you're living, a different uh, autocomplete will will be shown to you. Or if you're on Facebook, you know, we all understand this. And so I'm not saying anything that anyone doesn't know about. But what do we do about that? I don't know what we do about that. <laughs> But something has to be done because t- to go back in time and teach everyone from the age of five years old how to not create an echo chamber for themselves, which is asking a lot of people, by the way, uh, it's just not possible. So, you know, we're we're in a very difficult situation. Now, to require or to ask these for-profit organizations to essentially lose money to stop this sort of thing is not likely to happen or it'll be too little too late or something. So we need government regulations, which sounds very weird, you know, and there's always going to be the next thing that comes out, you know, if you put regulations on on Facebook, well, Reddit comes along and if you put regulations on Reddit then 4chan comes along and 4chan decides to try to do something, well then 8chan comes. There's always going to be the next thing. And I don't really answer to this. I I do believe, though, that what we need is much more robust education. I mean, imagine if we spent a half hour a day from the time they're in kindergarten until they graduate from high school, just a half hour a day, or let's just say an hour a week. I, I imagine a lot of people could probably swallow that. An hour a week. So. You know, how many weeks do you have in the year and the school year, something like 35 or something. So you have 35 hours a year of training for kids on how to think critically and how to avoid falling into Internet echo chambers and being brainwashed, essentially. I imagine that we would be able to curb this quite a bit. So until we do something like that, I just can't see this changing. Uh, The other thing that I I have this fantasy in my mind that certain politicians will come forward, like, imagine if this is just the fantasy, but imagine if George W. Bush and Barack Obama got together, I think that they're kind of friendly these days. And maybe Michelle Obama, that the three of them get together, and they create like a, a YouTube channel or something. And every week, they release another 20-minute little video where you bring Republicans and Democrats together and you say, hey, everyone, we are concerned about the state of the country right now. And here's what we're going to try to do. We're going to start from the beginning. We're going to talk about how to not fall into an Internet echo chamber. And both Republicans and Democrats agree that we have a problem on our hands. So because I think what that would do is – Republicans would be like, Oh, really? So uh, I can listen to George W. Bush, I like him. And then Democrats, Oh, I like Barack Obama, I'll listen to him. Because any effort to educate the public will likely be seen as a partisan effort. You know, if, if, if someone comes forward and says something, unless you appeal to both sides, one of the sides is going to see certain signals that are going to, uh, you know, cue them of like, Oh, that's the enemy. And so I have to avoid that. Anyway, I, I doubt that'll ever happen, so but the, what i'll tell people is is if you're not aware and you know because I heard I actually uh, was talking with a friend that doesn't live in Seattle, and uh, you know this was a few months ago, and she and she was like, "Oh, you know, how's Antifa going in Seattle?" And I was like, "What are you talking about there Certain echo chambers are basically and I think uh, Trump even called. Washington State or Seattle, basically like an anarchy state or something it 's not the, <laughs> i can 't even tell you how ridiculous that is, so if you live in an echo chamber where you believe Seattle is some sort of anarchy or anarchy you know some there 's some kind of problem that 's happening here it's there 's nothing happening there 's no problem. There were some very, very isolated issues during the Black Lives Matter protests between police and protesters. 99.999% of what was happening was completely peaceful and wonderful, and if you were there, you would have been like, oh, it's no big deal. It's definitely not what the news is talking about. So, uh, you know, are there isolated issues? Yeah, sure. But, like, Seattle is a – you know, there's thousands and thousands of people doing many different things, and to, to – so so whatever kind of fears is in your echo chamber about Seattle anarchy is just utterly ridiculous. And don't believe the news, people. Don't believe the news. Not even CNN or Fox News or whatever big name you follow, like particularly those. Anyway, the other thing I'll say is that we live in a society with a lot of different ideas, and that's always been true. And one of there's been various different uh, solutions to that. You can have a dictatorship where you basically just kill or suppress uh, the opposing points of view. You can have a a society that doesn't have a free press. You can have societies that are even, you know, where you sort of bifurcate things where you say, okay, uh, you people go over there and you people go over there. There's a lot of different systems. Well, we live in a system in the United States where we are set up on freedom, on the ability to think and, however you want to, and to say, for the most part, whatever you want to, to post whatever you want to, for the most part, and to propagate ideas. And so you're always, in a society like this, you're always going to have fringe ideas. It's just human nature to do that. Can we curb it with the same things that I said? Yeah. But you're never going to get rid of it. It's always going to be around. And so there's always going to be people. So no matter what we did... There's always going to be a small group of people who believe that the wildfires are being caused by the government and that they should you know, stop the firefighters with brandishing weapons. There's just always going to be that, and it sucks, <laughs> and you know, we should address it. We shouldn't just give up, but I find that a lot of people get so demoralized by this. Because you know, the other thing you want to think about is what is your echo chamber feeding you? In terms of bad news about the others, right? Really take a an inventory. You know, maybe every time you see something negative about the other side, write it down, because it's not as if you have to uh, consume those news stories. And think about what it's doing to your brain, because you could be you could be being brainwashed by the notions that other people are being brainwashed. So if you consume a lot of news about the scary other people, be, you know, they're being brainwashed into, you know, they're being brainwashed to block access roads uh, for the firefighters, you know, a brainwashing mechanism caused them to logically do that. And now you're paying attention to all those stories and you're being brainwashed into believing that those sorts of things are probably more prevalent than they actually are. And maybe even what's actually happening is is being blown out of proportion. In the same way that Antifa is being, I don't even know if I understand, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that, anti-fascist. Yeah, uh, is it Antifa or Antifa or Antifa? Antifa. <laughs> I, I don't even know that, you know, for a Seattleite to not even know how to pronounce that word, it, you know, should tell you something. Anyway, so... Take an inventory of what you're being exposed to because, honestly, I have really uh, protected myself from certain echo chambers on the internet in either direction because when I don't do that, I become very depressed. Literally, it's very sad. It's very, it's, it's, it's demoralizing. It just makes you feel like, what's the point in living? I mean, look at, what, look what's happening in the world. And every once in a while, I'll bump up against one of those people, and they'll just be like, oh, the world is just so depressing. I can't stand it. And the, people are literally suicidal because of what's happening in the world. And yet, me, I'm walking around, and I'm like, yeah, I love life. People are great. People in Seattle are great. People in Dallas are great. People in Washington, D.C. I, I believe people are good. Am I right, and the other people wrong? I don't know. Are the, are the other people right and I'm wrong? I don't know. <laughs> but I love the world and I love people and I love what's happening. And yes, there's a few misguided people who are doing bad things. And, and that's always been true. But life is a joy and people are a joy and people are great. And when you meet people, they're wonderful. And the the you know the arc of society bends towards justice, says it always has and it always will. I believe that. I believe in those things. So, why do I believe in those things? Well, i I don't know. I just believe in people. I believe in you. I believe in others. I believe in the people that I don't agree with. I, I've met them, and I think that they're good people. I've had you know one I, I've talked about this before, but one of the uh, influential people that, that influenced me to even start this podcast twelve years ago was a guy named Jason Graves, a friend of mine from my childhood. And he was, he's a big media guy. He, he was, he's, he has his own TV show situations and, you know, he was very popular in the media. And in 2008, I was going to lunch with him and I had had this idea of, you know, I want to start this podcast. And he, he was so nice to me and so encouraging that it pushed me over the edge. And I, and then I started the podcast soon after that. And he is a conversion therapist who believes that gay people are sinning and they're going to hell, and they they need to be converted into straight people. So this guy, Jason Graves, uh, you know, one of the most famous conversion therapists. I like him. I think he. I know he's a good person. And yet he is doing one of the most horrific, ugly, terrible, unethical, immoral things that I can think of. To try to change someone from who they are into something else based on a, on a 5,000 or I don't know how, a very old bigoted idea that has killed people, you know, and, and continues to kill people. It, the, the, the notion that gay people are wrong or gross or disgusting or, you know, against God or unnatural is literally resulting in Deaths. And it is like unscientific and just immoral at its core. And yet, this guy is a good person. So what do we do about that? Well, we try to appeal to them, and I have. And I'd like to think that my ranting and raving and soapboxing and arguing with him, but believing in his goodness has led to some doubt in his mind as to his beliefs. Uh, it's been a while since I've checked in with him on this, but, but I believe, I believe in that person who is blocking access roads to the, for the firefighters. I believe in that person. I believe that they're good and I believe we can reach them. And I can't conv- if I can't convince you of that, that's fine. I'm not trying to, but I'm just telling you that I, there's a road forward and demoralization And otherizing is not the road forward, I believe. Anyway, I thought I'd answer more emails, but uh, you know me, uh, I can rant and rave and talk forever. (laughs) So that does it for that episode in which we talked with Rebecca and she suddenly got cut off. And then I finished off the episode by alienating... All the people in certain echo chambers that don't like what I have to say. (laughs) So be it. I try my best. Everyone out there, and let me know what you think. I'm curious. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself and take care of others, you know, really, because we all deserve it. We really, really do.